Hello and welcome back to the Let's Talk Palestine podcast. Today we have a really special episode where we have the honor of being joined by Yara Eid, an activist from the Gaza Strip. In this interview, we'll be covering a bit about what life is like during the bombing campaigns of Gaza, as well as the humanitarian impact it has on Gaza during these onslaughts, as well as also what it's like to be a young journalist reporting whilst bombs rain down everywhere around you. This interview was actually conducted before the recent escalation by Israel, and so the examples that Yara uses will be speaking about previous massacres. And so when you listen to the things that Yara says, imagine it but then multiply its intensity by a thousand. I hope you find this useful. Welcome, Yara, to the podcast. It's great to have you here. It's an honour to have you. Could you start off by explaining a bit about yourself to the audience who may not know who you are? Um, that's always tricky. <laughs> uh, my name is Yara Aid. I'm a Palestinian activist, a human rights activist, and recently war journalist. Um I study international relations at the University of Edinburgh. I've worked with different organizations, human rights organizations um, within the UK and internationally. I've worked with Amnesty International, Their World, um, and obviously I started the Justice for Palestine Society on my campus at the university. Um, I'm 22 years old. I've grew up all my life in Gaza. And then I left when I was 16 years old uh, after getting a full scholarship to study high school uh, in the UK. So I'd like to firstly ask on exactly that last point that you said there, kind of what was it like firstly growing up in Gaza? And secondly, what was it like to leave for what I imagine would have been one of the first times in your life? You know, I left home when I was 16 um, and it was really difficult. It was, I, I never wanted to leave home. I've loved Gaza. I loved Palestine. I loved my family. I loved how, um, you know, everyone was so caring. And, and I was very lucky growing up there, even though with everything that was happening. Um, and I didn't want to leave, but circumstances forced me to. You know, I was um, only 14 years old when I saw people literally being killed in front of my eyes, being murdered, cut into pieces in front of my eyes. And that changed me. That Yara was never the same since then. Um, you know, I became very depressed as a as a child. I dropped out of school. I was dealing with severe PTSD. And, you know, it's not even PTSD. It's ongoing trauma. Like, PTSD implies that post-traumatic disorder. There was no post within the Palestinian context. And, like, unfortunately, with most of the Palestinian children in Gaza, like I think really big numbers, I think 90% of children in Gaza suffer from PTSD. And, you know, it's not even like when um, psychiatrists talk about it, it's not even PTSD, it's, you know, trauma, ongoing trauma. There's no post, um, it's a Gaza syndrome. Um, I didn't get to see my family for six years. You can imagine how difficult that, must have been for someone who's only 16 years old um was that because the borders were always closed or borders were always closed yeah. and if i go back i might be stuck forever and i wouldn't be able to leave again and there were so many cases of palestinian students going home and then being stuck and of course i 
I was so scared of going back. I was like, I'm going to go back and there's going to be another war. And I survived the last 2014 war, but am I going to survive the, the next war? I don't think so. Um, it was it was really tough. I didn't see my father for six years. And when I went back home, um, because I was like, I was so worried about my family after the 2021 war that I decided to take a year out of university because my mental health wasn't, you know, it was really affected by what's happening back home. And I had to go home and see my family. And I saw my father, but soon after I saw him, six months later, he passed away. And I, you know, I was robbed of my father for six years. I couldn't be with my family for six years. I couldn't see my friends or see my home or like visit my grandma. And well, on the note of atrocities, I'd like to transition this conversation now into speaking about the wars or so-called wars, I'd like to say, because I don't really see them as wars. I see them as more as onslaughts or massacres, genocide even on Gaza. Um, I'd like to shift the conversation towards that and ask you a bit about what life is like during these escalations, these onslaughts. What does it look like for on an everyday basis during these times in Gaza? It's I never have the right words to explain um, what I felt, let alone what a whole um, population of two million, more than two million people felt in an open air prison. You know, it's um, it was really, really traumatizing. Uh, it was it every time I think about it, I'm just angry. I'm just frustrated. I'm just so hopeless, and. Everyone feels helpless um, during the, the the war. Everyone is uh, the aggression. Everyone is like really terrified because you you don't know who they who are they targeting. They, you don't know if you're gonna be the next victim or not. You don't know if you're gonna lose your loved one. Um, and and you know we don't have bunkers. We don't have basements. We could hide to. We we don't have anything in Gaza you know it's it's defenseless people against one of the strongest armies in the world um it's two unequal sides you know it's an occupier and occupied it's uh so the the daily life honestly for for me it was different because I never like th this last aggression I didn't experience it as just a Palestinian sitting and at home praying that nothing is going to happen to me or my family or my loved ones and I'm praying that it's going to end this is how I spent the last three wars that I've lived in Gaza because I was a child but this time I returned to Gaza as an adult and I actually for the first time I wasn't a scared child at home I was a scared adult as a journalist, you know, I was a war journalist reporting with Ain Media, a private company in, in Gaza. Um, and, you know, it was my first time ever being on the ground when all of this is happening and I had to leave my family, which was the, the hardest things for me to be, you know, only 22 years old with no experience in journalism. But I was like, I have a message that I want the rest of the world to know about. And I utilized my like English skills and, and the fact that um I can you know share stories and, and get to people's hearts and I I used that I went on the streets and I was recording um maybe you've been um 
you've seen some of my content on social media, but um, I was with the people wherever there is a bombing, I would be there, I'd be recording what's happening, um, showing testimonies, showing the injured, like one of the most moving videos that went viral was um, Ra'id Rajab house, who they were targeted and we went to, to see the victims. And I was talking with the girls um, when the, the war, like the, the aggression, the bombs started dropping uh, near the neighborhood and they've literally just had their house bombed like the night before. They were injured. I was talking to vulnerable girls who were injured, who were in pain, and then they relived their whole trauma all over again. It's not, it's hard. It's like a collective punishment. You know, it's um, even if you're not affected, um, your house is not being bombed, you, you get affected by other ways. Like, I also shared another video about Rafah, like a, a, a camp in Rafah city, which is um, a camp. And I took a video of a Palestinian family that literally agreed to demolish their own home so paramedics and firefighters can get to the other house that was bombed. So even if you your house wasn't bombed, you have to make some sacrifices. Everyone is affected during the, the, the aggression. You know, no one was safe. And they did not um, distinguish between children or civilians or adults or elderly people. Everyone was targeted and everything was targeted. And we saw in the 2021 um aggression they targeted even press offices so me as a press journalist i was wearing my um you know um i was wearing my press vest and i was like shireen who's the palestinian icon was murdered only like a few months ago like we we didn't even recover from shireen's murder you know and it's it's ongoing you know palestinians lives are threatened in every single day in every way um if you're a journalist if you're a doctor if you're you know if you're just an ordinary citizen if you're a child reading um your bedtime story with your mother you'll be targeted and yeah i'd actually just quickly like to ask exactly about something that the Israeli government always likes to mention about their morality and how they're the most moral army in the world. Something that they like to claim is that they, they're they very moral because they give warnings to the residents of buildings that they're about to bomb, telling them to get out. Um, what has your kind of experience of that? How, like, how does this all take place? Does it even take place as somebody who has been there on the ground? Obviously, Israel claims that they like they tell or they inform people before they bomb their houses but this is not true as a journalist who was on the ground as i eyewitness who have has literally seen people cut into pieces in front of my eyes as a child and that led me to being a journalist when i grew up it's it's simply not true um and even if they say oh we warned them you know how they warned them they send a drone um rocket and a drone rocket is still a rocket it's just not the the so advanced rocket that literally like um makes the the tower go into the ground um so it's a drone rocket still can kill people still can cause so much damages and um so it's just 
a thing that they use to justify their war crimes and uh, something to appeal to the, the West and, um, you know, to run away from any kind of um, accountability uh, against them. Um, and, and honestly, let's say, let's assume that Israel is right. They um, tell people before they, they bomb, then why do we have thousands and hundreds of people getting killed? What, what like do people you know like if you tell them that what what about the massacres that you've committed what about the five children in the cemetery that in in the last 2022 war aggression five children were visiting their grandparents grave you know that story broke my heart five children between the age of seven and and um i think um 12 uh you know, they were murdered in the cemetery. How how is that? How is that targeting the Islamic Jihad? How is that um, informing people before bombing a site? Um, and you know, and we see this, we see this pattern in every different aggression. Um, you know, and there's different many um files that literally say Israel is a war criminal and should be trialed at the International Criminal Court. And you know, we have enough evidence to trial them. But unfortunately the international community is not taking the responsibility to trial them. And Israel keeps getting away with all the sorts of war crimes they commit. What are maybe other humanitarian impacts that people don't think about too much or specifically is there a personal story that you have covered that really can portray to the to the listener exactly what kind of life during these moments and under Israeli blockade and and onslaught is like you know a story that uh, stuck with me as a journalist who was reporting I had to go report on a five-year-old girl who um, was murdered after sustaining um, wounds Um, and I talked about how Israel turns um, weddings into funerals. It was the story of um, a family that they were having a wedding and um, the the mother of the groom um, was standing literally to pick up the bride and her um, her granddaughter was with her and they were bombed and they were going to celebrate. They were going in a wedding, like they were going to celebrate a wedding. They were gonna, honestly, it's just so hard to talk about this. You know, it's like, imagine, it's one of the most, like the happiest days of your life. You're celebrating um, the, the wedding of your son and then, you know, Israel turns it into a funeral simply by killing a grandmother, um, the mother of the groom and, um, the child who was a five-year-old child there's you know but the the problem is it's not it's not Israel does not only kill you know um so it's not like you've survived the war you've survived the aggression you'll be okay um what about those people who have been displaced they've survived but what about all these children that have you know, amputated legs now i've done a story on the children um of gaza just in 20 in the three days of the aggression in gaza hundreds you know of people were wounded and most of them were children and i was like 
um, filming in the hospital, there were children, they were like seven years old and they're amputated. Like, you know, what kind of life can they have later? Like, they didn't even get to have a life yet. Um, so it's not only about the physical aspect of um, just murdering people and injuring them and making them, um, you know, um, yeah, but it, it's more than that. It's the psychological impact. It's, you know, imprisoning 2 million people in a 365 kilometer square with a sea, air, land blockade. Um, you can't travel, you can't, like, even if you're outside of um, Gaza, you're still, your trauma still, like, um, pretty much with you. Like, for me, as a Palestinian who's spent the last six years in the UK, I'm not gonna lie, I haven't had one day without, um, you know, anxiety about my family back home, without um, pain over what's happening to my people, or um, having flashbacks from the different um, aggressions I've seen, dealing with PTSD and, and dealing with, with all of that. So even if you're in a safe place like the UK, I'm not safe. I'm not safe from whatever they have done to me since 1948 and to my people, you know. Um, there's grave, grave results on, on human lives. With what you've just said, I think we've now gotten a good, clear picture, a visual picture of exactly how these bombing campaigns, these onslaughts on Gaza look like. But I'd like to maybe try and understand a bit of what it, how it feels to, to be in these situations, how it feels to be a Gazan where you've been trapped in this open air prison all of your life. And again and again, the Israelis start raining bombs down on you. Is there a sense of desensitization with Gazans when, whenever these things happen because of how often they happen? Or is nobody ever prepared I see this is a really dangerous claim that um, recently people have been talking about that. Well, you know what? The people of Gaza got used to the blockade. It's been there for like since 2007. People assume that because the blockade has been going on for 15 years, which is a really long time, that people gotten used to it. But it's honestly not the truth. You know, people still like when I was in Gaza, I saw people terrified. I saw people scared. I saw people experiencing insane amounts of grief and uh, pain. You know, they were scared for their lives. They were uh, grieving their loved ones. They were. It never. They never become like used to it. You never become used to the suffering. You never become used to the the killing of your people. Um, but it's they're not surprised. I'd say, you know, they're not desensitized, but they're not surprised. They've seen so many horrific things in their lifetime that um, anything that Israel does is not very shocking. They know it's a colonial entity that will literally do everything in its capacity to just kill Palestinians, wipe them from existence, um, even if it's, you know, in the West Bank or in Gaza or in the... 48 lands it's even in the diaspora you know the the threats that palestinians have to go through just as a student activist you know you still get death threats you still um get the zionist lobby trying to you know um cancel your whole society and like 
remove it from the university. It's all these things. It's you're in a fight, but unfortunately, sometimes it it feels too much. I'm not sometimes. It's all. It always. It's too much. You know. It's like you have one of the biggest armies in the world targeting you. One of the biggest armies and strongest armies in the world targeting a population that has no army even. And now if we specifically turn the conversation towards your experiences growing up, was being kind of like a war journalist and somebody who's there on the ground every time these bombs come down, was that something that you ever wanted to do? Or is it something that you felt you had to do? You had kind of like a duty, you needed to do it because you felt like you could get a message out there? Honestly, I never expected myself to be on the ground as a journalist just because I was so traumatized from what I lived through in Gaza that I genuinely thought I'm gonna die if there's gonna be another aggression and it took my mom almost two months to convince me to go back to Gaza after the 2021 aggression Um, we were in Egypt stuck and my family like the rest of my family my dad and my brother were in, in Gaza and I couldn't like the, the aggression happened and that's when I started speaking up and that's when I started using my social media because that's my only platform that I have. Um, and I shared a video of me crying because I thought my, you know, my house, my neighbor's house was bombed and I couldn't reach to my family for more than 30 minutes. And I thought my dad and my brother were killed and luckily they weren't. But, um, you know, that that alone the 30 minutes like was the hardest 30 minutes of my life you know um and i took it upon myself to let the world know what's happening in 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 gaza and i wanted them to feel what we feel in you know on a daily basis and that's when i started talking about palestine and i started um sharing a lot of um things on my social media and I didn't have like a big Instagram audience but I I had like maybe um you know kind of like 9,000 followers um who were sharing my stuff and then when I was in Gaza it's funny I told my mom if anything happens I need to leave immediately like if there's another aggression I can't I wouldn't be able to like survive it I need to leave and it's naive of me because you can't leave if there's an aggression. Like, you know, the borders are closed. Um, it's very complicated. But I genuinely thought, you know, I'll try my best. And it was just a coincidence that my passport wasn't with me. It, I applied for a UK visa, so it was in Jordan. And I kind of got stuck in Gaza. And that's when I realized I can't stay home. Like, there is no... I was interning with a film production company in Gaza and I wasn't doing journalism stuff, but I was very inspired. I've always been inspired by Shireen Abu Akhle and by other journalists who, you know, literally like, um, I was really inspired by Shireen Abu Akhle and other journalists who literally put their life at risk in, in everyday life just to spread the truth. And I felt that was so powerful and we needed more of that. Like I, I didn't, by living in the UK and in the West, I didn't see that um, Gaza is being represented, um, that Palestinians in Gaza can share their experiences with the rest of the world or can expose the criminality of Israel and what they're doing to them. So I felt 
a responsibility. I had a platform, I spoke English, and I had good connections back in the UK. I've been working with international organizations and now I'm on the ground. I need to do something. And, you know, my the film production company, they turned into journalists like this. They were, they had their press um, vests on and they were reporting. And I went and I was like, you know what? I told my boss, I am coming with you. Even as an intern, it was really difficult. They weren't going to let me. But I was so passionate and I was like, please, I have a message to send. I want to do it. And I went on the ground with them and I was from, you know, one side to another, from um, place bomb to the hospital to, to, to casualties. It was it was so much. And especially as a 22 year old who's suffers from PTSD and still like not over my trauma, being there and witnessing my same trauma happened all over again was really difficult but I wanted to send a message and that was the reason that kept me going you know um and I was posting on on social media and people were like reacting and people wanted to know about the truth and wanted to spread the truth and my videos went viral even though Instagram tried to obviously silence um and censor us and like shadow ban us um my videos went viral and so many people got to see the reality of Palestinians because for them, Yara is a student at the University of Edinburgh and now she's forced to being a journalist on the ground covering, you know, people being killed. Um, I think it was shocking for people. They never comprehended the fact that anyone could be in the same, you know, in the same place. Anyone is unsafe in Gaza. Well, there's no doubt that since you've been a war journalist and activist, you've done an amazing job in terms of showing the world exactly what Gaza is like during these times. But finally, as my last question, I'd like to ask a bit about what resolution actually means in Gaza. When Gaza isn't in the news because Israel isn't bombing it, what does this yeah, resolution. What what does it look like after the end of, of these offensives? It's always tricky when you're like, how did it resolve? But then what kind of peace are we talking about? Are we talking about a peace that still imprisons two million people in a strip um, with no drink, like literally with like 97% of undrinkable water, with a blockade that has one of the highest unemployment rates in the world, with people every few years having to go through, you know, another aggression. You know, people in Gaza, they're, they're never feel stability. They never feel security. They never feel safe. They, at any moment, I, I, I can ask any of my friends who live there or any of my family members, and they can tell you at any moment, another aggression could happen. Another war could kill all of us. Um, so it's it's never ending. Even if they actually stop bombing, there is like, you know, structural violence that's still happening in, 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 in Gaza, you know, the 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 blockade and its um results on people and people's mental health and people uh, actual health when they try to go get treatment um and they're denied entry to, to Israel or to Egypt. Um, you know, Palestinians um in Gaza I don't know how to explain this. They they live without living, you know. Um, 
the UN said that by 2020, the Gaza Strip would be unlivable. We're in 2022 and my people are still there, you know. Um, my family is still there. It's people I know, it's people I've grew up with, it's people I love. And it's really sad because, um, you know, they're innocent people. They're, they're, no one deserves this life, no one. Well, on that note, I'd just like to thank you again, Yara, for, for taking the time to speak to us and painting a really vivid picture and helping the listeners really understand what life in, in Gaza is like, life in the, in the world's biggest open-air prison. And we wish you and your family all the best. But from here, I'd just like to quickly thank the listener too. Thank you for taking the time again to listen to Palestinian voices. It really means a lot to us. Keep your eyes peeled because we have got a few episodes coming out very shortly. But until then, thank you again and see you soon.